Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Still apart after seven long weeks with little hope of face-to-face reconciliation, I'm remotely here with Thea Lenaduzzi. Hello. Um, I'm so bored of food. Can you tell and me yet a nice... every week you ask. I know. I want to... <laughs> tell me a nice meal you've had. Well, um, can I tell you a story about a failed meal instead? I think you might enjoy it more. It has a happy final twist. Okay, okay. So um, well. at the weekend I had... Um, do you know what colomba is? It's, um, it's panettone, but for Easter. So it's okay. in the shape of a dove. Oh, so lovely. I had loads of leftover colomba uh, and I didn't know what to use it for. It was going stale. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll make a bread and butter pudding. I've never, I've never made that before. I hear it's nice. I think I I've make that all the time. Yeah, I make so it with my daughter all I, the time. Oh, it turns out I don't like it. Oh. <laughs> but so I'd use all the colomba and I'd made it. It's all right. I, I, I gave it to other people, you know, safely. Um, but I had, for part of it, I'd taken some raisins and currants and I'd soaked them in brandy. Nice. And uh, I sort of left some leftovers in the cup and then I washed it out this morning, but evidently not enough. So my coffee this morning came with a delicate whiff of brandy. So it was like a less hardcore, oh, which I appreciate puts me on a slightly slippery slope, but it was, it was quite, it was quite a nice start to the day. <laughs> I had your dad as someone who, who secretly laces their coffee Little with brandy. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I make it often with croissant. Yeah, I've heard uh, that's nice. Pudding. And it's Even nice, more butter. but you've got to, I mean, the thing is, it's just, it's English stodge. I think you've either got to really want that sort of custody English stodge or not. Yeah, I think that was, I think that was the problem. It was also the hottest day of the year, I think, yeah. on Saturday, <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't very well thought through. No, no, but next time do send us some to me because I, I do like it. Uh, right, listen to feedback there. Yes. We're, we've had some serious emails that we need to, to pay due respect to. Chris Stewart emails from Washington in America to urge caution in naming my cat Boudica because he did the same thing. And he says this, about 20 years ago, we did exactly that. But having two small children, the name quickly morphed into Booty and then Booty, a dull name, but it stuck. Also, my son happened to get bit by the cat. Oddly, he's fine with cats now, but has an aversion to early British history. Can you imagine uh, calling that out the window? What, Boudica? Booty. Booty, yeah. Well, the thing is, we... We've not only got this cat, we've now getting sent video because it's too young to come to us. It's only four weeks old. So it's going to come to us in a month's time. But the owner 
uh, is going to send us a video every couple of days of little baby Boo, the uh, the, uh, the the kitten. Isn't that lovely? A little ginger cat. Uh, now, literary pets continue. We have Joyce Carol Oates writing in the paper about her cat called Zanch. I'm presumably mispronouncing that. Zanch? Do you know where that comes from? Uh, no, only only, only I because you. I've read it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it comes from uh, The White Devil by John Webster. Victoria's servant is called Zanch, Zanch. I don't know, Zanchi? I've never read it. Anyway, Joyce Carol is writing about her cat uh, in the paper. Joanna Gray apologises for no cheese connection, apology accepted, but tells us that she's adopted a cat and called her Holly after breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, a lovely Alan, sl- slinky black thing, I imagine. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, Alan Perkins sends a picture of his Cavalier Beagle cross dog. I'm not sure we're going to approve of this. Who my wife daftly allowed me to name Jean-Luc Dogard. I like it. Star Trek. Lucy Dallas would be fine about that, I think. Um, a couple more. Andrew Morris emailed to say he won a Zoom quiz because he was asked the name of the Bronte brother and could answer Bramwell because of the name of a friend's cat. And apropos of nothing, he also tells us that because Russian doesn't have an equivalent of the letter H, Harry Potter is known as Gary Potter. <laughs> Can that be true? I don't know. It may well be true. Yeah, I, I'm going to believe it anyway. It's too. I, I was going to. It's check too it. good not to believe. Yeah, it was yeah. too good to check in the uh, journalistic phrase. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm believing him. And I got a very long, hugely enjoyable email from Bill in Illinois with full of lockdown tips. One was dense reading. And the idea is, especially if you've got kids, don't go for froth, which you won't find respite in the time you have to spare. Go for three or four pages of something hard. And he recommends Montaigne's On Vanity or something by Borges. He also suggests the Divine Comedy. The plot is clear and easy to follow. He descends step by step and rises step by step. Read it as a science fiction novel, an exploration of another world. You must have read it as a kid, dear. Do you, do you read Dante in Italy? You must do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we ha- yeah, we sort of had to. Is he sort of Shakespeare? You've just got to do it. Yeah, exactly. He does um, no, there's no say in the matter. And more importantly... Well, you know, parts of it, at least. not Maybe not the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And more importantly, Bill, every Saturday morning, Bill has Belgian Waffle Day. What a start. Could, is that too stodgy for you? Uh, I don't really like sweet things in the morning. Oh, for God's sake, Theo. Where's your, apart from brand, apart from booze. <laughs> apart, from, apart from, yeah, very boozy coffee. Okay. Uh, please do keep your comments coming. Literary pets, lockdown food, things for uh, for, for Thea to have uh, in the morning that she might like. <laughs> the boozier us- the better. Yeah, the boozier the better. And also send us the single book you'd recommend for someone going slowly bored at home, your kind of desert island book. What would you choose? At Stig Abel, at the TLS, at Thea underscore Lenarduzzi on Twitter or email me stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. And make sure you're subscribing to the TLS to keep all this going. All you need to do is use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. The best price anywhere on the internet, six issues for £5 or $5. Coming up on this week's show, my favourite philosopher and handily the philosophy editor of the TLS is Tim Crane. He's written a piece about artificial intelligence and will talk us through that and other things in the paper of a philosophical bent. And everyone has been talking about Defoe's The Journal of a Plague Year. Well, the wonderful author Will Eaves has written about it. And newsflash for you, TLS Books is going to be publishing a special ebook of Defoe's classic with Will writing an introduction. So get some early info on it now.
One criticism of philosophy is that it tends to ask unanswerable questions. And even when there are answers, they don't actually affect the real world as we ordinary people will understand it. The mind-body problem may be a problem, but my life continues whether it is or it isn't. But can philosophy help us deal with the uncertainty of the world as we are experiencing it at the moment? In the paper this week, Nigel Warburton offers us some philosophical approaches to the coronavirus from Thomas Hobbes to Susan Sontag. Tim Crane, our philosophy editor, will talk us through that and his own essay on artificial intelligence, plus pick out some other highlights, including how we smell and profiles of Jeeves's favourite philosopher Spinoza and the great populist Isaiah Berlin. He joins us from Budapest now. Tim, hello. Hello, Stig. Hello, Thea. Hello. Um, so I always have a bit of a jibe at philosophy, Tim, as you know. Uh, is it always going to be condemned as being a sort of from the realm of the brain box, but not actually that relevant? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice, um, friendly sort of opening comment. There's, um, yeah. The philosopher Jerry Fodor, he once said about Richard Dawkins that... Uh, Dawkins is one of those scientists who disapproves of philosophy but can't resist doing a bit of it himself. Things aren't just irrelevant, full stop. You know, something's irrelevant to this or irrelevant to that. So irrelevant to what? Um, well, philosophy is, um, philosophy is a largely theoretical enterprise. It's to, an attempt at understanding. But that it does involve understanding how to live as well, and that's tra- traditionally part, been part of the philosophical enterprise. But um, so that's my, att- that's my attempt to justify um, the, the relevance of philosophy. Philosophy is relevant to some things and not to others. It's relevant if you want to understand the world. Right? Does that become particularly critical? I mean, one of the reasons we had this conversation, Tim, a while ago about getting Nigel Warburton to write this piece was, does it help you think about something as game-changing, as existential, to misuse the term, uh, as coronavirus? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, clear thinking is relevant. I think you see a lot of woolly thinking around um, about this. You see a lot of panicking, a lot of exaggeration, and philosophy is supposed to keep things in perspective. I think that's part of its um, ambition. Um, but what's really needed here, of course, is not the thing that you can supply without expert knowledge. What we need is, you know, how does this disease spread? How can we treat the disease? How can we stop it? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? And you know, philosophy doesn't have very much to add to that. And one thing that philosophers have tried to provide, some, some kinds of philosophers anyway, have tried to provide a sort of peace of mind, you know, or so we might hope. And I suppose what, what Nigel Warburton's piece um, does so well is to show how people have thought, how, pe- how people have kind of wrestled with whatever their particular reality was in the past. Yeah. And through reading that, then we can kind of try to grapple with our own. So he... he he points to Susan Sontag, who's obviously quite a useful person to use to help us think about the now in terms of the way she drew our attention to, to language and the, yeah. the use of metaphor. Exactly. So I think, you know, if you're going to try and achieve peace of mind, you have to think straight, you have to think clearly, to keep things in perspective. And these metaphors can, can get out of control. Nigel draws attention to all the war, war imagery that's been used um, in, in particularly in the British context, you know, we're talking about the Blitz spirit and the Prime Minister being a fighter and all these all these things. Um, and um, I think it's really that's it, it's really important to realise this isn't like a war. This isn't what it is. Um, yeah, and to realise that that kind of language is, as, as he says, it's it's there's a danger to it. And I, I mean, I feel it's dangerous. It gives me shivers that I can't quite explain. So it, 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 it's doing something. Um, and, and he points he points specifically to, to Hungary, where, where you are, Tim. 
Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the um, prime minister here has taken on, has used this opportunity to, to, to take on even more extreme powers than he had already. And he now rules in effect by decree, he's able to bypass parliament and um, for an unlimited period. So, and this is like, you know, as, as Nigel points out, this is like um, treating the situation as if it was a time of national crisis, like a war, you know, where you think, you know, we, we now have to take on um, extreme and unusual powers to protect ourselves. Um, which is something, Tim, which is something that Thomas Hobbes would approve of. So, and you know, if we go through this piece by Nigel and go through, consider some philosophers, but Thomas Hobbes's political philosophy would say that when things get hairy, you need strong leadership uh, and, and don't worry about the rights of individuals. You need something coming from the top that tells people how to behave. That's right. I mean, I think that the, the interesting thing about Hobbes is that he thought that our natural state was a state of extremity. Um, the natural state was a state where things were very hairy, uh, to use your, your terms, to, you know, appropriate for you. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the natural state was, you know, the, the life of man is nasty, solitary, brutish and short, or whatever it was he said. You know, this image that we're all basically at war with one another individually, uh, and the sovereign is needed to, to keep control. And this is why we give our power over. We give our we give ourselves over to the sovereign so the sovereign can um, bring peace to us. Um, I think most people don't actually think that these days. I don't think people think that, you know, if it weren't for absolute control of a, of a, a monomaniacal ruler like um, Victor Orban, for example, uh, that society would fall apart. I think we're more optimistic about what society can, can do with could. non-extreme circumstances. But you could make a case that in countries... I'm not sure this entirely holds up, but in countries which are more authoritarian, they are better positioned to dealing with something like a pandemic. We The headlines this week in Britain about use good British common sense, which is kind of classic example of crass exceptionalism here. But the idea of that versus, say, Singapore, which has this ability to say you're going to stay in your home or we'll, we'll, we'll make you stay in your home, that type of attitude would suggest authoritarianism may be more successful in the short term in some areas. It's true that yeah, it's true. Looking at the the cases that the authoritarian regimes have have seem to have done quite well, but also some non-authoritarian regimes have done well. Yeah. Um, so you know, Greece has done strikingly well, and Switzerland, um, Switzerland and um, uh, uh, South Korea. So, so we've got. Um, it's important to get things in perspective. I think you know that you see, you think, oh yes, we need an authoritarian leader to stamp down on this. But then, when we see that non-authoritarian countries are also doing okay, then we we might be locating the the problem in the wrong place. Will you explain the? Uh, it gave us the headline actually for the piece. That this is quite a classical piece of philosophical wrangling. The trolley problem. This is a famous uh, thought experiment in in moral philosophy, uh, invented by um, the the Oxford philosopher Philip of Foot. A trolley here refers to it's an, the American term for a carriage going going down a, a train towards um, a junction, and on one on one part of the track um, there was one person who couldn't move, and on another part there was a track of the track there were five people who couldn't move, and you were in a position where you could pull the lever to go either to the part where there was one person or to the part where there were five people. What should you do? So you have you're you're in a situation where you ha- you have to kill somebody. You will inevitably kill somebody should you choose to kill the five or choose to kill the one or should you save save the five in order and sacrifice the one um, and this is um, a 
this is a puzzle that might seem, whose answer might seem obvious, but um, it's, um, it, it isn't actually that obvious. Um, and the way you tell the story gets very different responses. Um, is it legitimate to kill, to kill one person to save a thousand people? Is it legitimate to, you know, for example, to have a, a, um, to execute one person to save, um, to, to save five people? Um, these, these discussions go on and on. Um, but obviously the relevance today is that there are people making decisions about who to save in hospitals, making these absolutely horrific um, decisions about who should die and who should, who should, um, who they should try and save and, and who will survive. Um, and so it's natural to look towards these, these more hypothetical theoretical cases to see if there's some comparison. But I think as Nigel points out, this is where the theoretical moral philosophy, which has its role, and the actual lived world of actually having to make a decision about who will die and who will live, really come apart. And to try and apply the, the moral philosophy case to the real world seems almost frivolous in, in these cases. But, so. but does it, Tim? Because you know, we're in the realm of utilitarianism sometimes. I, I talked to you because I wrote a piece for the Sunday Times about... Um, John Stuart Mill, which is about, and there's the sort of the reverse of the happiness principle, which is the harm principle, try and do harm, a small amount of harm to a smaller number of people. And in the end, because there's no absolute cure at the moment to coronavirus, that's ultimately what everyone is doing. How much are you willing to sacrifice the lives of people who may die in the next year anyway, versus sacrifice an entire country's economy, which may harm people in much, uh, much more people for longer uh, in just as bad ways. I mean, these are all impossible calculations, but ultimately they are the calculation that people in governments across the world are making. It's not a theory. It, that, that is practice, and it has to be the practice, doesn't it? Yeah, I, to I totally agree with that. Policy decisions have to be made, which have consequences about who will live and who will die. Um, that's certainly true. And in weighing up, you know, what the consequences, uh, you take into account how many people will die, you know, what, under what conditions they will die, and um, and, and so on. Um, what I, my own view is that um, it's totally wrong to think of that as a sort of model for morality, as if this was somehow you were doing something that was good by letting these people die or choosing that certain people die. You have to make a practical decision, um, but um, that's, a, that's a question of, so to speak, public policy rather than individual morality. Whereas the original trolley problem was about, you know, how do you do, how do, you do the right thing? Right? Well, you do the right thing by bringing about the greatest amount of good. What's the greatest amount of good? Well, the utilitarians say it's the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Well, that would imply certain things, that you actually do the right thing. If you say, you know, um, kill a man to give enormous happiness to, you know, millions of people or something like that, the sort of examples people talk about. Um, so I think we have to distinguish between policy questions and morality, and I think. Um, but, pol but policy questions, but the policy in the end will be judged, or should should it be judged, on its morality? Um, not necessarily. I don't think so. I think there are other considerations come into, like you know, the um, there are economic considerations. There, um, we judge. I mean. So that you, you should judge, my view is you should judge politicians on the consequences of their actions. And the, well, the consequences of their actions are not all moral consequences. Um, there, are, you know, there are things like the, the good of the economy, the good of the nation, the security of the nation. And then there are moral principles like you know, 
don't kill people unless you really have to or something, you know. And all these things are going to be weighed up in a political situation. And I think using a simple moral calculation is uh, not going to help. So I suppose I'm saying philosophy can, if you think about this philosophically, maybe, maybe, maybe it will make some difference to how, how you should think about the virus, as opposed to what I said a few minutes ago. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's my point. You're, you're butterflies, aren't you, philosophers? In in my experience, um, what about the, the other question? Because we are talking um, about big issues here of life and death, and there's a um, Montaigne is quoted by Nigel Warburton. I think Montaigne is quoting someone else actually when he says this that we learn philosophy in order to learn how to die. Do you feel, Tim, as someone who's kind of immersed in philosophy, that when it comes to the question of your own mortality or those around you, that you will have gained a sense of perspective that you talk about because of philosophy? Is that is that realistically an aim, or is that you know? To me, it, it might be that that sounds good in theory, but isn't just there in practice. Yeah, I think it's very hard to say in general. I'd like I'd like to think so. I'd like to think philosophy gives you a sense of pr- proportion, a sense of perspective. You try and you try and abstract from your own condition to to see things in some intelligible abstract way. Um, so I'd like to think in some way it gives you some sort of, you come to terms with, with your mortality. Um, but I know, but you know, I'll get back to you on that in 20, 20 years time. I, I we, if we can carry on talking about this or let's hope more than 20 years time. Let's yeah, hope bless you, yeah. No, thanks. But, um, <laughs> but it's, I think the individ- there's a question of the individual motivations, why people study philosophy. And there are many, many of those, um, there's that great, there's that, there's that great line from Voltaire, isn't it? When he, he said by a priest on his, I bet this isn't true, but in case it is, uh, he's asked by a, a priest on his deathbed, "Do you deny the devil in all his forms?" And Voltaire allegedly said, "This is no time to be making enemies." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I think the relationship between philosophy and you know and our the awareness of our own death is a very important thing, uh, but it's not the whole story. Tim, you 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 flashed us forward, I think, twenty years, and then you you generously gave gave us a little more time. <laughs> but so, <laughs> well, look, let, let's flash forward a hundred years. Um, is it possible that we would be having this whole discussion with all of these little rivulets that we've that we've made room for with a, with a robot? <laughs> no. <laughs> Good, Next <that's> question. <laughs> Um, well, tell us, tell us why then. I mean, how significant is, for example, how significant is the difference between, um, I find this interesting in, in your piece, between reckoning and judgment? Real artificial intelligence, what people actually produce, the sort of stuff that's in your phone, um, is absolutely amazing. And the things that the people have managed to do through what's called you know, machine learning or sometimes called people call deep learning, the way that machines can learn things now uh, is extraordinary and couldn't have been predicted in the beginning of artificial, the days of artificial intelligence in the 1960s. Um, but there's no evidence that um, artificial intelligence as it now is could produce something that was a, um, a genuine conversation. Um, what computers do ultimately is that they compute, that is they calculate uh, and information is represented in various forms in the computers and the computers do certain things with it. They process information. And that's true of the, the newfangled AI machines, just as it is of the old pocket calculators. Um, so computers compute and that's what Cantwell Smith in the, in the book I was reviewing um, calls reckoning. Computing is reckoning. Um, Hobbes, actually, interestingly enough, he was the first person who connected these things. He said that reasoning is nothing but reckoning. 
in his typically sort of reductionist view. Reasoning is nothing and reckoning, just adding and subtracting ideas. That's what Hobbes said. Um, but Cantwell Smith disagrees with that. And he says there's something else in human life or re in real thinking, which is what he calls judgment, which is um, somewhat more um, hard to define, but um, something about having an awareness of the significance of things and how things matter to us. Um, as the philosopher John Hoagland, who influenced Cantwell Smith, says, you know, computers don't give a damn. That's the thing about computers. They don't give a damn. I mean, that, this is at the heart of Cantwell Smith's objection to the claims made on behalf of AI. And he's an AI scientist himself. He says that's the essence of it is that computers don't have anything like judgment. Um, but is there, is there an argument, Tim, that because what, what he says and what you say is that you can create an artificial environment like a chess game and a computer can become brilliant at that and beat everybody, or a Go game, which is more even more complicated than chess. Is there an argument that if you could create a complex enough equation that accounted for the complexity of the real world, in the sense that you could build equations around existence that, that deals with the level of complexity that we deal with every day, if that were possible, it would be possible for a computer to then manage, manage itself within those rules, and that would be akin to becoming a judgmental creature. We might, in some sense, be able to build, it's possible to build a, a copy of a human being that does everything a human being does. Uh, is that possible in principle? Uh, well, in the broad sense of possible, in the philosopher's sense of possible, um, I think it is possible because the human being is a material object. And everything the human being does, including thinking, is a consequence of its material nature one way or the other. So if you re reproduce that material nature, you'll reproduce everything a human being does, including thinking. It's a different claim to say that there are some equations or algorithms that describe everything that a human being does. And somehow you could implement those, you could, you could write down those algorithms and implement them on a computer. And, that, and if it was complicated enough, then uh, that would... Um, then that would be a genuine, genuine artificial thinker. Um, because it's highly debatable whether everything that a human being does is captured in, is capturable in terms of algorithms and, um, and in terms of kind of things like outcomes, you know. So the, the point, the, the crucial point about chess and or even about Go, I mean, impressive as it is that they built this machine that could beat the world champion of Go. But the crucial point about Go is that it's a game. And the game has an end and it has a point, you know, the point where you can say the player has won when such and such a thing happens. Um, something like human conversation has no end, has no point, has no purpose. There's no, there's no thing. How do you get, how do you get a, mach a machine to speak uh, with you in a conversation? Um, well, then you'd have to know if you're doing it in the standard AI way, you'd have to know what the end point of the conversation is or what the purpose or the goal of the conversation is. And so we all know, you know, we've had that experience of talking to Siri on our iPhones or whatever the inferior Android version of it is. Um, the, the, uh, it's, Alexa in, it, it's Alexa in my house. Alexa. Well, Alexa is quite good, but if you wanted to have a conversation with Alexa, I mean, you can't. You just can't. Yeah. And my, my kids try all the time. And they think they, they think it's funny to say Alexa, do you do you smell and stuff like that? And it's great fun. And the answers obviously are canned responses. You know that's yeah. what because they they anticipate what kids are going to ask. And in that respect, AI has not improved since the nineteen um, sixties or seventies. Sorry, and in fact, Alexa, do you smell is quite an interesting 
question. I mean, can <laughs> crucially, could could would a robot be able to smell? Can we talk about the philosophy of smell? Because I found that I found that piece really interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting piece. Yes. So um smell. So philosophers have tended to to to, to talk about when they talk about the senses and sense experience, um, right going back to right to the very beginning, um Plato had this view that this that the senses were sort of deceptive that uh, of, about they didn't tell us about reality, um, but they only gave us this kind of um, this image or simulacrum of the ultimate reality. And the ultimate reality must be known through reason. And and then other philosophers have said that we actually can know the real world through the senses and so on. But the striking thing is that the sense that everyone focuses on here is vision. And that on the whole, and philosophers tend to emphasize vision as the, you know, when they talk about sense perception, they normally just assume they're talking about visual perception. Whereas, of course, and this book by Anne-Sophie Barwich is really interesting. Uh, I haven't read the book, but it sounds very, very interesting. Um, Emphasizes that there's all sorts of different things about smell. Smell, um, smell is an incredibly important sense to us. Um, I mean, not least um, because most of taste is smell, in fact. Um, as, as anyone would find out if they did that. Have, have you ever done that that wonderful experiment of biting into an apple and an onion blindfolded with your nose completely blocked? Oh, no, and what, what happens? You can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference. Uh, it's for, from what's going into your, on the receptors on your tongue, you cannot distinguish between an apple and an onion. And in this in this whole area, Tim, as it was with the AI, I always glibly mention the mind body problem, which is a sense that sense that you know there is this materiality, but we don't really understand what connects the material nerves firing here, there, and everywhere to how we actually feel about things, and that's the problem that you can't necessarily recreate that for robots. And even in the sense of smell, we we can look at there's an epithelium, I think is um, uh, is talked about in this piece, which is a receptor and takes takes the information we still don't fully understand how that all means a smell and how we then respond to that smell, do we? That's the great mystery at the heart of, of all of life and all of philosophy. That's right. I, well, yeah, yeah. I, well, I think it's the mystery at the heart of all of philosophy. Some will disagree, but I, I agree, yeah. Um, so how do you get from... We, you understand the mechanisms of these things, and I think one of the interesting things about Barwich's book is that she's trying to explain those me- how those mechanisms do give us an understanding of, um, of the phenomenology, that is to say, of how things seem to us. Um, but ultimately, there's this question, why does anything seem like anything at all? Why is it that by putting together these cells in this way, we get the wonderful conscious experience of, of tasting something delicious or smelling something delicious or smelling something disgusting? Or um, And that is the great puzzle that is the mind-body problem. Um, and, you know, it's like the artificial intelligence question in this way. I and mean, it is a philosophical question because people don't really know what it is that they're asking when they ask it. And that's why we're going around. It seems like we're going around the houses all the time. Um, with artificial intelligence, you might think, yeah, but surely if you had a computer that just did the way we just made the computer much more complex and it could just do all the things that we do, but just in a more complex way, then it would think, see? But we don't know what complexity means here. We don't know what it is for a conversation to be more complex than the one you have with, with Alexa or Siri. Um, and similarly, in the case of the smell, I mean, I think we're, what we're talking about here is, you know, we've got to focus on the right questions. How do we, 
what are we trying to understand when we say we can't understand how the brain and the sense organs can produce experience? Um, and this is my point, Tim, because I, I'm fascinated by it. I love talking to you about it. But the point is that I, if I go out of this room now and smell a rose, then in the common sense world of, of reality, I will lean down, smell the rose, the rose will smell whatever it smells to me, and life will continue. So at one level, this is dramatically important. And at another, it's dramatically inconsequential. And I find that balance of the two with philosophy uh, it, is interesting. Yeah, I know what you mean. Hume said the same thing. David Hume, he said that uh, when he, when he um, uh, goes out and plays backgammon or billiards or whatever it was he played, and he eats and drinks with his friends, his abstract speculations seem so cold and lifeless. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's a difference between living life and, and, and thinking about it, I suppose. I mean, sort of to put it in a very banal way. <laughs> Um, Tim, should we leave it there? What's that's a good note to leave it on, I think, for, for anyone. Uh, uh, Tim, what a great pleasure to speak to you. You too, Stig. Thanks. And Thea, bye. Bye, bye, bye. Uh, in, other, in other news, Stig, um, to bring us back to the observable <laughs> world, can you yes. picture the image that we have of Isaiah Berlin on page 11 of the paper? Yeah. What on earth does he have under his arm? I don't know. Can you, can you picture it? So I'd really, okay, well then I'd really like to launch a competition to okay. name the object under Isaiah Berlin's arm because to me, it looks like an absolutely enormous cigarette, but enormous. I, I can't think, okay, okay. I'm going to, I'm <laughs> going to get a copy of the paper and we, anyone listening to this podcast you should, should find get a that copy. quite easy. Yeah, I should be able to do that. And uh, all right, challenge, <laughs> challenge accepted, Thea. Name the object under okay. Isaiah Berlin's arm. <laughs> Lovely. 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Regular readers of the TLS will know that we have a newish recurring feature called, straightforwardly enough, rereading, in which a writer returns to a book that meant something or did something to them once and considers how things might have evolved over time, or finds an alternative prism through which to view a text, drawing out some new rich resonance. Rereading might then occasion a but now I see kind of reaction. A few months ago, in more playful times, Benjamin Markovitz revisited the fantastical advanced Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> Player's Handbook. Remember, remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's great stuff. <laughs> um, this week, however, Will Eaves, a former arts editor at the TLS and the author most recently of the novel Murmur, has, for reasons all too painfully clear, stuck closer to reality and taken up Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year. Like a comet, he says, its time has come again. It brims with recognisable situations. Will Eaves is here now. Well, no, he's not. He's not here. He's there at home, but is alert, whatever that means. Will, hello, hello. Hello, hello. I'm, I'm, ominously, alert. I'm ominously close to you in the sound picture. Yeah. We really are, and I'm, I'm glad of it. <laughs> right, well, look, I'm kind of hanging myself out to dry here a little bit, but I've, I've never read the journal. So can you introduce us briefly, as if for dummies, and I'll emphasise the as if part of that. Thank you very much. It's it's a marvelous um, it's a marvelous piece of fake reportage. It is um, Defoe was a great journalist, and this is his account written in 1722 and pretty quickly of the 1665 Great Plague, you know, the last major visitation in this country. Um, but it's also written in the light of an outbreak of plague in Marseille um, a couple of years before uh, he sits down to write. So it's sort of a strange, it's a very European phenomenon, the book. It's about not just the plague of London in 1665, which killed 100,000 people, but it's about the whole European experience of the plague over the past 300 years. Uh, and, you know, funnily enough, I just feel it's, it's relevant on and evocative at so many levels now for us because our situation is both intimately British, you know, we have a real catastrophe on our hands, many thousands of people dying, and of course it is also European. Um, and your new way of thinking about it um, is to, to imagine how it might translate to the screen. I mean, what, what would be some of the challenges? <laughs> Well, of course, I'm an extremely experienced screenwriter. Well, so you are. I mean, um, For sure. Well, I think the thing is, it's the, the difficulty would, from the point of view of you know producers and people putting up the money for this kind of thing, if you did a film of the plague, uh, on the one hand, people would say, well, this would be boffo box office because it's it's a disaster movie and they often do very well. The difficulty with any sort of disaster narrative is... Um, and I think also the virtue 
is that the disaster really takes center stage. And therefore, it's sort of quite difficult to know how you turn the narrative into a heroic narrative, how you put actors and actresses and sort of stars in that context. I think that's always a problem for that sort of film. But I think rather than see it as a problem, you have to see it as a virtue because that really is the situation that Defoe describes. Although there's a narrator who's called HF, and we have to assume that the F stands for Foe, the family name, um, the narrator is not a hero, as Anthony Burgess once said. He is a narrator. So we are free then not to worry so much about his motivations, his arc, any of the things that, you know, the usual sort of producers and, and story showrunners go on about. We're free instead to think about the thing itself, the journalistic terrifying entity, which is the progression of the disease and the progression of the story at that level. Which is one of the things that strikes me when we, re when we read Defoe and think about it is actually maybe that's the reason why there's probably relatively little literature of plague when you think about it you know if you think about Chaucer hardly talks about plague um Shakespeare hardly talks about plague despite being completely immersed in it 1918 the Spanish flu pandemic doesn't produce a great swathe of plague literature you get modernism and you get the sort of shadow of it but you don't really get a lot of dealing with it with it you get people uh, talking about it, don't you? You get people saying the world broke in two, you know, but you don't yeah. actually get your truth. You don't then get heroically driven narratives. Yes, I think that's, that's, a, that's a very, you know, that's a good point. Um, I think, though, that there are kinds of narrative that tend to be, it's a question of what you think of as being the normative sort of structure for a novel or a film. Uh, I suppose that's my point. We tend to think, automatically that um, something has to have a lead yeah. or, um, you know, a three act um, sort of recuperative shape where, you know, you come back to the beginning and things get better. And actually Defoe does give you that. There is a, a sense that the visitation ends and all is well again, which is the most sort of fictional element of the novel, really, because in fact, the plague rumbled on um, well into 1666 and um, two or 3,000 more people died uh, after the supposed end of the, of, the, of the visitation, at least the end that we're given in this story. But I don't see why you can't have um, a film that's rather more um, free-flowing, that does follow the drift of the event itself without losing one's attention. Because I think actually people will wait and will select their characters from a sort of mosaic or a large cast and they will follow things rather more individually and rather more sort of piecemeal in a rather more piecemeal fashion than we are apt to think. Well, you, you call it a caravan of episodes made up of people yeah. going through the same horror in different ways and you can imagine a kind of almost like Mike Lee might do something like that where he'd just yeah. have a... Or, or like a book of short stories, actually. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a kind of um, something that's thematically unified but isn't necessarily one person's story. Sort of crucial to that, just to, just to continue this, this idea of adapting it into a film, which we may do at the end of this, who knows, um, 
you sort of have to also cast unknown actors because as soon as you have actors who you who you know you they sort of bring with them their previous body of work and so you'll end up reading a hero into a given situation i think that's true you, you, you who, who can remember really the interesting the people you tend to remember from disaster movies are are the sort of supporting cast gene hackman in the poseidon adventure is one that springs to mind uh, and equally where um where novelists have have tried to you know write about these kinds of sort of world altering disasters it's quite difficult to remember who the protagonists are you tend to remember the situation um uh, and uh, you know there's the mary shelley's the last man uh, has has a similar problem uh, is it an easy read then will because um i think it's one of those books that everyone will have or lots of people have heard of really in the last 8 weeks Possibly, because they'll have heard of Defoe, they'll have heard of um, the novel for which he's most famous, um, and then they would have been like, well, Plague wasn't really... He, so, I, mean, so, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure well, do, you think, do you think they're thinking, do you think, oh, I've got enough of that at home at the moment? <laughs> no, I, thought, I yeah. thought you were auditioning for a part. Yeah, I, <laughs> oh, I am. This is the terrible thing. Once you start writing this, you think, oh, I could do that. I could, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but is it... Is, is it an easy read? Is, is it, is it um, a pleasure to read, Will? Because, because... Well, interesting. When I, when I first read it, which was back when I was a student, I remember it being the most... I found it the most difficult to read of the, of the, of his, of, you know, the big novels, which would be um, of the four big novels, which is Robinson Crusoe, Moore Flanders, Roxana, and Journal of the Plague Year. And, and I found it the most difficult, um, partly because you know, it, it didn't seem to have a sort of a central character axis, but also because at the time, I don't think I was really, how can I say it? I, I mean, I simply hadn't sort of lived enough to appreciate the tone of the book. And the tone of the book is the thing that's gripping because the tone of the book is that of a person trying to get down all the journalistic material, the mortality bills, and the way, different ways in which people try to escape the visitation, different ways in which they die. And it's, the tone is that of someone gradually collapsing under the panic of their own description. <laughs> the more they, the more that the closer they get to what's happening, the more sort of frantic um, the writing becomes. And it's the balance that Defoe strikes between that sort of um, personal anxiety and fear on reflection and the sort of cool, calm, um, self-possessed way in which he actually makes things visible to the reader. It's that balance that's really interesting. And I think that is gripping, but maybe it's gripping for, um, <laughs> maybe it's gripping for a sort of 40, 50 year old in a way that it's maybe not for a 16 year old. I don't know. Or maybe it's gripping when, when the idea of a pandemic moves from a sort of theory to a, to, to a reality. Cause I've been thinking about this, that, Say you're writing a realistic novel of the twenty of 2020, and you start writing it, and then coronavirus happens. What, what do you do? Because you, either you think, well, I'm going to have to reference it because it's become the whole world, and therefore I can't pretend it doesn't happen. But then you don't want to write a sort of boring novel of lockdowns. I so don't think. I mean, I, I am sort of. I, I'm beginning to think about writing another novel. I mean, I'm. I'm really. I write at an absolutely tectonic pace when it comes to future. <laughs> so I mean, you know, just just don't hold your breath. Um, or anything else but, uh, uh, <laughs> but I think that you don't have to try too hard to get um, extraordinary circumstances into one's prose 
And in fact, I think it's probably a bad idea to try at all. I, I think that one's, one's actual context um, seeps into the writing anyway. That's my sort of, that's my conviction, really. But I wonder whether we're going to get a lot of novels set very overtly in 2019, uh, where you sort of say it was the summer of 2019, and then, uh, and then, like, then, like, you might get in, say, Shakespeare, where clearly the experience of living in a plaguey city must inform all sorts of things. It might sort of seep into the stories and seep into as play, the, the prose and the metaphors, and like you say, that context will become pressing. What does tend to happen, I think, in imaginative writers dealing with real circumstances, it's the sort of, it's the nitty gritty, it's the kind of infrastructural stuff that find, finds its way in rather than those changes, rather than the big theme. I think there's often, you know, the idea that, that, that writers of fiction or dramatists are constantly thinking about, you know, what a great change in circumstances means uh, is, is often mistaken. They're often they're just thinking about how something has changed, what has actually happened to the fabric of life. In the same way that, you know, when you read the sonnets, um, it's really interesting to think about how, um, you know, people get from A to B, i.e. the state of the roads. <laughs> it's much more, about, much more about the state of the roads, really, between London and Stratford-upon-Avon than it is about, you know, the, the, the imponderables of um, a particular relationship. But the problem, the problem with that, Will, is that I'm just dreading, and this may be me being sort of seven weeks into lockdown and just generally filled with despair, but I'm kind of dreading a great British novelist, Ian McEwan springs ineluctably to mind, doing his lockdown novel where three families across the country, each experiencing lockdown differently, learn something about the human condition, which is filled with detailed, detailed research uh, and a sort of state of the nation novel. I... It may well happen. I mean, I think the thing is you sort of have a choice, don't you? You either... Well, it's not a binary thing, but you know, I think there are obviously people who like to who like to write very close to the grain of events and to do it, as Tim might have said earlier, very consciously. But I think that actually there's a sort of unconscious mechanism in most really satisfying imaginative writing, which is that you know you you, you do what you were going to do anyway, but you find that it's it's become sort of party coloured by the sort of group experience. Uh, I think that's the I th I think that's the way it works. I mean, I haven't got any proof to hand because I'm only about four pages in, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want from me? You know, I'm trying my best. Defoe gets through it, doesn't it, by kind of this postmodern approach where he's both a journalist, and this is true of Robinson Crusoe, which was also he pretended wasn't, uh, Robinson Crusoe was not set up as a novel, was it? It was set up as a journal and an account of something that actually happened. The beginning of the very, very long tradition that goes right up to adventure novels and beyond of, 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 of extraordinary fact. Yeah. You know, amazing adventures that are actually true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and normally they have a sort of, what they develop after Defoe is they develop a frame, you know, so that people begin to sort of discover diaries or, you know, or they go to a lecture and they hear someone talk about yeah. a plateau in Africa, whatever it might be. But this is, this is kind of earlier on in that. And, and it's, it's different to Robinson Crusoe, which, you know, which is a sort of discovered thing. Um, because this doesn't bother with any frame at all. It's just an account of the plague as if it's a real um, documentary event itself. 
Yeah. I think that's what's interesting about um, the Defoe book. It, it's not as a, even though it's written 60 years afterwards, it doesn't feel as if it is. It feels as if it's written at the time. And we hope people want to read it now, not least because we're going to publish an ebook of it, Will. We're going to, the TLS books are going to publish a text. You're going to supply the introduction. Uh, and we hope this is going to give some solace. I mean, I'm interested in the psychology of that. We may have to leave it here, but I'm interested in the psychology of people reading about pandemics in a pandemic. Because clearly it does happen. You know, the, pe- uh, uh, the plague by Camus has gone up the charts. And I think the same has happened to Defoe and to a couple of other books. People either, will, I suspect, will either not want anything to do with historical plagues or will want to completely immerse themselves in it. And I can't quite work out the psychology around either of those things. <laughs> well, they're probably actually, they want a bit of both. I think the thing is, there is something, the question is, do you want to, do you want to meet the reality of, it, reality of it in a rather sobering fashion or do you want some form of reassurance you know, some cathartic experience of it that, you know, that will make you sort of feel better at the end of reading the novel, whatever it is. And I think that's, that's, um, you know, the truth about that is that you get both with Defoe. There is the satisfaction of encountering a piece of imaginative art that has a sort of, you know, some kind of privileged status, but you also do feel you're getting something bracingly true. Um, Um, And that's unusual to get that, I think, in, 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 uh, in the novel. And we had a, uh, Andrew Owen, who, who works for us, did a TV review, and he talked about how he found consolation in Newsnight. Only in the sense that, <laughs> which I find... I find um, you know, You've met him, you can imagine it, Will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, <laughs> consolation in Newsnight. Yeah, and, yeah. and the argument was this, Will, which I see if you, you, you buy, because I, I buy it as an argument. I think it's a very clever argument. I don't agree with it at all, but I, I think it's a very clever argument, which is uh, journalism is a sort of first draft of history. And therefore, you are reminded that at one point, this will be history. And that seems to me true of the Defoe in the sense that the, the plague that he talks about was far more serious than the plague that we're talking about in terms of its lethality and its sort of vast impact and the Black Death before it as well. But that too came to an end and life continued and, deve- and you know, life got better and developed and, and that sort of Whiggish view that history always improves. I think, I mean, I think that's got, there's got a lot to be, you know, that, that's, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, a lot, maybe a lot to be said for it. I think in a way, if there is consolation to be had in something like you know, Newsnight or, or turning on and hearing Radio 4, you know, during a nuclear attack, <laughs> I, think, I think what it is, is the idea that there is a sort of mechanism of understanding out there still that makes you feel other people are on the case too and that you're not just adrift in a sort of um, terrible you know, flood of agentless chaos. Mm. That a process has been kind of activated and will be yeah. worked through and we may that, emerge with lessons. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Well, should we leave it there and you can go off and write your novel, which may or may not include a... a, a Get to page five. Yeah, page page five and then the plague came. I think I'm making a pretty, pretty solid, pretty solid start on page six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for for joining us today. Delighted. Thanks very much. Bye, Will. Bye. Um, it was made into a film, you know, Stig. Was it? It was in in the seventies, apparently, with a screenplay of course, of course by. Um, it was. Of course yeah, in the seventies, late seventies, uh, there was a screenplay by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, of course. No. It's called El Año de la Peste. Yeah, I looked it up, and then I found on Wikipedia um, a little description of it, and there was just this short summary. 
A dreadful sickness is found in a Mexican town. A doctor tries to alert the authorities when he discovers its epidemic nature. No one listens to him and soon the illness spreads. The government tries to manage the information in order to prevent terror. Sounds quite familiar, really, doesn't it? Yeah, thank God that wouldn't happen now. Uh, that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Tim Crane and Will Eaves make sure you're subscribing to the paper this week after all that philosophy we also have Stephanie Sy Queer on the books her ailing grandmother chose to read at the end of her life it's a lovely lovely piece that we also consider what Bob Dylan's latest song really means next week we stay in America for a US literary special until then from Thea and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.